The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only and are not to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today on The Lab Report, we're going to talk to Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Yeah, we're talking muscles today, Michael. Muscle-centric medicine. You like paradigm shifts? Uh-huh. This is a paradigm shift. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to The Lab Report. I mean, how many times can this kid fall down, run into walls, Listen, bruises all over Parenting is hard, Michael. How many times <laughs> before he gets it? Hello. Hey, Michael Chapman. Hi, Patty Devers. How are you today? I'm doing great. How about you? Uh, I'm doing, I'm crushing it. Except for the fact that your small child keeps falling. <laughs> he's not, he's not crushing it, you know, in the gravity <laughs> department. <laughs> Still working that one out. Well, but uh, he's little, so yeah. give him, we'll give him time. Well, welcome to the lab report. Thanks. Welcome, everyone, to this podcast brought to you by Genova Diagnostics, where we talk about functional medicine, specialty lab testing, integrative therapeutics, and the like. And if you like this podcast, you should probably go to iTunes or Spotify and subscribe to the show and rate and review and leave us some stars and some feedback there. All that stuff helps. It does. It really does. And and we appreciate you doing those, mm-hmm. those little tasks that we just set up for you. Yeah. Uh, if you have feedback, you can send that to podcast at gdx.net and uh, we'll take a look at your emails. Thank you for sending those emails. Well, I'm excited to have Dr. Gabrielle Lyon on because day to day here at Genova, I'm a bit outnumbered Mm. in the DO naturopath Mm. dichotomy Yeah, and Dr. Lyon's a DO, so I'm feeling pretty good about today. Yeah, and I am going to be outnumbered here, so I'll be very careful (laughs) about the topics that I broach in this conversation. I won't be talking about such naturopathic, crazy ideas (laughs) like root cause medicine. Oh, come on. Come on. (laughs) Homeopathy. Well, Dr. Lyon is right in line with all of these things, and she's really bright. She has pioneered something called muscle-centric medicine, which is interesting. It is interesting. It sounds interesting, Uh, and I want to hear more. I want to know more about these muscles and, uh, you know, most people just consider muscles to be for locomotion, Uh, you know, just far more than that. Move, move your body. Right. Right. But there's far more to it, more metabolic activity. And we're going to get down into it with Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Let's bring her on. Patty. What? Do you know who we have on? Oh, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. I know. How excited are you? (laughs) Okay, let me tell you a little bit. Dr. Gabrielle Lyon is a Washington University fellowship-trained physician in nutritional science and geriatrics and is board-certified in family medicine and osteopathic manipulation. She completed her undergraduate degree in human nutrition, vitamin, and mineral metabolism at the University of Illinois. Dr. Lyon works closely with the Special Operations Military and has a private practice in New York City. In addition, her practice services the leaders, innovators, mavericks, and executives in their prospective field. Dr. Lyon brings unparalleled results to her patients with personalized advanced nutritional interventions, metabolic and genetic testing, and behavioral action implementation. And with that, welcome to the lab report. Thank you so much for being on, Dr. Lyon. (laughs) What's up, guys? (laughs) (laughs) How's it going? It's going good. We're psyched to have you, Dr. Lyon. And 
because not only are you in a DO and I'm outnumbered on a daily basis here, I'm sure. excited, <laughs> but also we know as a functional medicine practitioner, you happen to specialize in muscle and you developed this concept of muscle centric medicine. I also know that you had a mentor named Donald Lehman. Can you speak to us about Dr. Lehman and how he has influenced this specific medical focus? Yeah, it's really interesting. I feel incredibly fortunate to work with Dr. Donald Lehman. And actually, um, we've worked together for about two decades, if you can believe Whoa. that. Yeah, I know. And he <laughs> is one of the world leading experts in protein metabolism highly well-respected in academia. He's a professor emeritus at the University of Illinois and really a founding father in protein metabolism as it relates to some of the amino acids, in particular leucine, mm -hmm. mTOR, mm -hmm. and its relationship on muscle. Those kinds of advanced topics is really he was the pioneer. So mm. because yeah. of that framework of thinking, you know, when you think about medicine, especially, you know, we're functional medicine physicians, you have to think about asking the correct questions. The answer or the diagnosis is only going to be as effective as the paradigm in which you are working under, is the, the paradigm of the thinking and the correct questioning. So, you know, working with Dr. Donald Lehman, I realized that we have this failure of a fat-focused paradigm mm -hmm. and that muscle is really at the core of metabolism really as it relates to these diseases of chronic illness. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's interesting. And it's almost like you speak and write about muscle as like a, a vital sign and endocrine organ. Like what are what yeah. are some of those important metabolic influences of the muscle itself or what are some of your favorites? Because there's so many. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there, there are so many. And, you know, muscle is actually an endocrine organ, which which you had just mentioned. It's not just about locomotion, mm -hmm. which is the first thing that people think of or, of course, looking fit or you know, uh, looking good in a bikini or mm -hmm. mankini or whatever it is that <laughs> right. you want to wear. But it's actually so much more than that. And when you think about from a purely fundamental level, muscle is your metabolic currency. Okay. When you think about muscle as a metabolic currency, it really determines everything about the way in which you metabolize substrates, mm -hmm. in particular carbohydrates, which right arguably should probably be a four-letter word <laughs> for a lot of people. <laughs> right. Um, right. So the, the more active you are, the healthier your skeletal muscle, the more your ability to dispose of glucose, to dispose of carbohydrates. Subsequently, you have better glycemic control, better control of your carbohydrates, better control of your glucose. Thus, you have a formidable, formidable opponent to diabetes. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. elevated triglycerides, all the subsequent diseases that we think about with an abnormal or aberrant metabolism. Hmm. And it's interesting because it does have that sort of, it acts as like a glucose like sink in a way, it the does. way you're describing it. it. Absolutely. Yeah. You're absolutely right. It's responsible for roughly 80% of glucose disposal. Yeah. Well, talk to us a little bit about myokines. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the other aspect of muscle, which is largely untalked about, because the science is relatively new. And when I say new, I say roughly around, maybe a little over a decade, but muscle, when you contract muscle, it secretes myokines. Myokines are a hot topic because of the inflammatory cascade. Mm -hmm. When you think about myokines, when it's secreted, which are actually what we would traditionally think of as cytokines, okay. for example, 
interleukin-6, mm-hmm. which has been pretty hot in the media as because of its subsequent infl- you know, inflammatory responses. But when myokines are released from skeletal muscle, they actually have an anti-inflammatory effect. Huh. And that is astounding that, you know, we all often huh. think about muscle as that we're going to train harder so that yes, we're going to utilize more calories, absolutely core fundamental process, as well as some of the secretory processes of muscle, which then go through travel throughout the body and have hormone like effects yeah. and really affect the immune system and the brain and the bone. Hmm. That's fascinating. So building muscle can be anti-inflammatory in essence. Yeah. What a, that is brilliant. Actually, I would say it is anti-inflammatory and really the most overlooked aspect of health. Hmm. It's funny because we think about all these other things as being sort of at the backbone of inflammation, whether it's, you know, oxidative stress from environmental toxins or, you know, all these things that can, you know, our diet or smoking, all these things that can contribute to inflammation. But if you just focus on building muscle, you've got an endemic way to counter it. Yeah, yeah. You do. And I think that you bring up a really good point. And, you know, the point is that we do have a failure of our current paradigm of thinking. You're exactly right. Mm-hmm. We're thinking about free radical damage. We're thinking about adipose tissue as it relates to inflammation. And I always find it interesting because from the concept of functional medicine is actually root cause medicine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yet we are still talking about obesity as if that's the core problem. Obesity is a secondary issue to impaired muscle. Hmm. That's fascinating. I love that. That turns it on its head. I, I mean, know. That puts sarcopenia it's, right at the, right. the root. That's right. Huh. That's absolutely correct. And sarcopenia, for the listeners who aren't particularly familiar, it's a decrease in muscle mass, strength, and function. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's some laxity on the defining factors of it, but really at its core, it's this change in muscle tissue. And it's traditionally thought of as a disease of aging, but it's not. Hmm. We are largely domesticated as humans. We are incredibly untrained and sedentary. Sarcopenia can start in your 30s. Wow. Yeah. Right? (laughs) You know, these are very profound topics. Yet, again, I I can't stress enough that we are not looking at root cause medicine if we're focusing on adipose tissue. Adipose tissue, fat tissue is a secondary issue from the, you know, diabetes, type two diabetes, the root cause starts in the muscle tissue. Sure. Insulin yeah. resistance and skeletal muscle starts decades before. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And it goes back to the fact that that muscle is that kind of glucose sink. And when, yeah. you know, from what I've read, when you have higher levels of, of glucose in the system, it's the muscle that starts becoming resistant first because it's, it's essentially toxic to the muscle cells. Absolutely. Skeletal muscle is one of the first places insulin resistance begins. Yeah. Well, we know that you also did a fellowship in geriatrics and you talk about muscle as a vital sign and an endocrine organ. So how much does muscle contribute to longevity? And is it because of all of these metabolic influences or is it merely just stability and fall risk? Another great question. And, you know, the data would suggest that the higher the muscle mass the better an individual's survivability. Mm -hmm. There's been some great data and great papers that relate to lean skeletal muscle mass and one's ability to survive any kind of catabolic state, any kind of fall or injury. 
In fact, the more muscle mass you have, the less likely you are to fall. Um, you know, and at the core, I think that it's a very complex conversation. Muscle, when you think about what kills people nowadays, is really these diseases of aging, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, uh, you know, mm -hmm. hyper, you know, high cholesterol. So those are the metabolic issues, which an individual can survive for a long period of time with an aberrant metabolism. So, the, so muscle obviously has a huge impact on that sector. Secondarily, when you're talking about falls, mm -hmm. if an individual falls, their ability to survive and ever regain and go back to their home and regain the quality of life, activities of daily living is incredibly diminished. Yeah. In fact, if you fall and you break a hip, um, it's, I, you know, I hate to say it's a death sentence, but it's the survivability is incredibly low. Subsequent, it doesn't necessarily have to be on that fall, but if you have, if you have fallen and broken a hip, um, you know, the trajectory of aging, because then you have to deal with bed rest and, and what you astutely spoke about is muscle having all these other metabolic benefits there then becomes a detrained kind of bed rest aspect. And that becomes devastating for yeah. people's strength and ability to recover. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's so interesting too. And we were talking with, uh, I think it was Dr. Andy Galpin who is, who is talking about right. how something as subtle as foot speed is 100% tied to your overall, uh, you know, musculature. And that's one of those things that will prevent falls because it's just that little tiny thing that keeps people balanced and keeps their feet, you know, ahead of them rather than more likely to fall. It's, it's all very fascinating. Yeah. And he's absolutely right. You know, as a geri as a geriatrician, we look at a walking speed, we look at grip strength, we look at the, the quickness and an individual can go from sitting to standing multiple times. Um, those are all very important indicators. Yeah. You know, the other fascinating aspect is we don't actually know how much muscle an individual should have. We, we don't we don't actually have that data. We we know where obesity falls. We know what body fat percentage looks like, but nobody could tell you what optimal muscle mass looks like. That's so true. That's such an it, interesting and it, and it leads to kind of our next question that, you know, Michael and I kick around all the time. Well, it's, you know, there's so many controversial or it seems controversial thoughts out there, opinions around protein, but one of them is certainly dietary intake recommendations. And, you know, the sort of historic line was always 0.8 grams per kilogram of protein is, you know, what prevents wasting and things like that. But how much protein do you recommend or, or does it depend? Um, I think that when you are starting off on your protein forward journey, mm -hmm. it doesn't depend. Mm -hmm. I think a safe place to land is one gram per pound ideal body weight. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And that perhaps is higher yeah. than obviously what is recommended, but the RDA, those, those are changing, right? There's mm -hmm. the protage study, the new dietary guidelines will come out. Arguably it will lag in the protein department because of the narrative around protein, but one gram per pound ideal body weight is an incredibly effective place to start and even maintain. Hmm. Ideal body weight. Yeah. Ideal body weight. So for example, if an individual is 300 pounds, but their ideal body weight is 200 mm -hmm. uh, pounds, you would dose them at 200 grams of protein. And we're getting nowhere near that on a day-to-day -day oh, no. basis. But with, with protein, is it possible to 
get in too much protein. What's your thoughts on that? So the data, we, we've never actually seen data to support that. That's the theory. But again, if something is a theory, that's when you execute a randomized controlled trial and the data is reproducible. We haven't actually seen that. Um, you know, I suppose getting up above 3.5 grams per kilogram, then you have to deal with nitrogen and urea. That can be challenging perhaps for the, the pathways to deal with. Mm -hmm. But again, this is purely not based on any kind of science. I, I wouldn't be giving you good science if I said that I knew that answer because what we've actually seen in overfeeding studies at 3.3 grams per kilogram is a decrease in body fat and an increase in lean muscle mass. Interesting. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. So I, I think that, you know, I think the human body is incredibly flexible yeah. and, you know, people can survive being vegan. People can survive with lower protein. You know, it all depends. There's a there's a huge variation and a huge variability for humans. The question is, what is optimal? Right. Yeah. And that's a good segue too. like, we, you know, there's a lot of talk out there about not all protein being created equally, you know, as far as its digestibility, its bioavailability, things like that. And uh, there's, you know, plant-based proponents and animal-based proponents out there that kind of debate which is better. So what are the main differences between plant and animal protein in your opinion? Well, I would say that we can all agree that plant protein has a different biological value than animal protein. Mm -hmm. um, these are hard, fast biological numbers based on amino acid profiles. The animal-based sources of protein have higher levels of the essential amino acids. There are nine essential amino acids. You know, I tend to focus on leucine. Leucine is one of the branch chain amino acids necessary for muscle health. And we've already talked about how important muscle health is. Mm -hmm. You know, when you think about plant protein, you are looking at very low bioavailable nutrients, zinc, iron, calcium. Th these nutrients are not even close to the bioavailability in animal-based products. And the amount that you would need to consume to reach those optimal amino acid levels. For example, you would need roughly six cups of quinoa, which is, I don't know, around a thousand calories mm -hmm. to equal one small chicken breast Whoa. when you are looking at bioavailable quality. So I, I think that we can all agree plant protein from a scientific value is different than animal-based protein. And, you know, it's interesting because it's not really a disputed fact in the scientific literature. Any, you know, the evidence does not support that, you know, these are hard, fast, measurable numbers. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. So it's just a huge, it's a huge narrative. You know, people will say, oh, well, broccoli has all the amino acids. Yeah, but it, it you know, <laughs> may have such a substantially <laughs> lower <laughs> amount where you need 10 cups of broccoli right plus you know well then what do you what do you recommend for vegans or vegetarians when when you want to ensure that they're getting adequate protein and they need to avoid sarcopenia it's it can't be to eat you know very tough like it's, four buckets you know, of broccoli in, right you know? right so you know from a practical aspect is is really kind of um, augmenting the food sources each meal with essential amino acids and branched chain amino acids okay um you know, the truth is the sickest patients that I've ever seen in the geriatric community were vegan or vegetarian, hands down. Wow. 
the frailest, the sickest, the ones that got injured the most, the ones that had torn skin, the ones that didn't recover, they, you know, the, the poor dentition, those guys were the the sickest, hands down. So I would say, if, you know, we're talking about sarcopenia prevention. We have to have a real hard, straight conversation as to why, because mm-hmm. there's really two groups. There's the group that is animal ethics, that I just am not going to eat an animal. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then, then that kind of, I totally get that. That takes that part off the table. Mm-hmm. And then the other group, unfortunately, which is growing, is the group that thinks being vegan or vegetarian is healthier. Hmm. And that's when education as functional medicine physicians, as health coaches, as health professionals and educators, the real hard conversation needs to be had. And the re-education of a very loud narrative, which is really essentially the mouse with a microphone, um, saying a lot of noise that just simply isn't true. Yeah, because I mean, at the end of the day, you have to hit that that leucine number, right? If you want to have some, if you want to have muscle anabolism, <laughs> if you want to have <laughs> anabolic growth of muscle, yeah. <laughs> then you have to hit that leucine number, and that's a branch chain amino acid. Like, like that is that right. something that you incorporate in your strategy if you are working with? A yeah, I mean, well, you really need all the amino acids. So if you just give someone leucine, you're not going to lay down muscle tissue. You're not going to protect your tissue. But if you give someone, say, two or three ounces of fish and then a scoop of branched-chain amino acids, which is leucine, isoleucine, and valine, now you have a more robust response of uh, muscle protein synthesis. And and this is so important for aging and sarcopenia prevention. You know, um, when you're young, you have a lot more flexibility. It really doesn't matter what you do as long as you're active. But as you age and you hit that, you know, in – trajectory and you hit those turning points in your life, that's when you have to be very conscientious of, you know, fasting and getting in adequate protein and really what that looks like. So um, it's not as simple as just supplementing with leucine. That is absolutely essential, getting leucine in, but it's, it's important to do it with all the amino acids. Yeah. I mean, it's, and we know about the branch chain amino acids. They work in concert with other amino acids for maximum Absolutely. benefit. But then we hear a lot about red meat and it's been touted as disease and risk inducing. Why do you think animal protein and or red meat is so vilified? I think that at the core, people feel very morally righteous. So it's this uh, don't eat red meat. It's going to kill you. It's bad mm-hmm. for the planet. None of which is true. Okay. Um, I am not entirely sure as to why it's been vilified as, you know, the only thought process I can, you know, put to that is that it's emotional for people. Um, But it's certainly not fact. The evidence supports us eating 1.8 ounces of red meat a day. Hmm. Uh, That's what the NHANES data set suggests. And, you know, the other question would be at what mechanism would – um, red meat cause cancer. No one has ever named a mechanism. What mechanism of action? Hmm. I think as practitioners and as professionals, we have to be very conscientious of the data that we're receiving and the quote information. You know, I get this a lot on my social media. Oh, well, red meat's been coined as a carcinogen, but no, it hasn't. The WHO and the IR committee, the individuals on that committee had a very interesting way of determining their data. They threw out the majority of randomized control trials huh. because of their N number. Yeah. Huh. Because the, the the sample size 
anything less than it was like 60 people they felt was not adequate when anyone who's done, you know, I've done research, I, I did years of research and people that are putting together human randomized control trials, depending on the quality of the study, it's, they're not big studies. So they threw out all the gold standard studies. They then replaced it with epidemiology. And we all know that epidemiology is incredibly low quality evidence mm -hmm. and we would never make a a global health recommendation based on epidemiology. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wouldn't. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, and I would say the majority of physicians would never do that if they really felt, you know, if they were, uh, felt, you know, honorable about the information and knew how to read a study, they would never say that, that that was adequate. Um, so they just utilized epidemiological data because the individuals on the board, the individuals that were on the committee were largely vegetarian. Oh, interesting. Wow. So they doctored this this uh, information up, and people can go and look at it. They should look at uh, Klerfeld. So David Klerfeld, who was part of the committee, was like, this is ridiculous. You're throwing out these randomized controlled trials. You're putting in low-quality epidemiological data. And then when it was further examined, so the Annals of Internal Medicine came out and did, you know, a, um, a grade study. So they looked at all the data, and they found that there's not an association with cancer, that these that this information was inaccurate. Um, yeah, so if people were interested in, in what the data actually says, they should look at Annals of Internal Medicine. It was the whole red meat study. It was right before COVID. The plot <laughs> Multiple studies. Huh. That's fascinating. I mean, I it, it harkens back to some of the stuff with the, you know, what's happened with sugar and right. the uh, clinical implications around right. sugar right. and dick. Right. Um, I, I, I don't know. And I don't know whether we should get into this, but like another thing that people always point to people sort of in this community will say, oh, well, you know, mTOR is, is such a problem and, you know, red meat intake stimulates mTOR signaling and, and things like that. And, and that's, that's part of the cancer, the, the carcinogenesis aspect to it. So I don't, I don't know if whether that's, uh, yeah, that's pretty ridiculous. So I think we should talk about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's so, so for those people listening, mTOR is mechanistic target of rapamycin and mTOR is a complex that is in every cell. So there's mTOR in the pancreas, in the liver, in the muscle. Protein and mTOR, so mTOR in skeletal muscle is exquisitely sensitive to amino acids. Mm -hmm. mTOR in the liver and the pancreas is much more sensitive to carbohydrates. Mm. So when you think about mTOR, and, you know, we could go on and on about this, but, you know, to say that mTOR stimulation caused by protein and skeletal muscle causes cancer is absolutely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. If people were really concerned about mTOR and cancer, by the way, which is not an initiator, yeah. right? Okay. So this is not an initiation factor. And then the second thing is what kind of cancer are we talking about? Right. Lung cancer, ovarian cancer. What kind of cancer are we talking about? Hmm. So excess calories excess calories in the form of carbohydrates are a much more potent stimulator of mTOR in all tissues than protein and skeletal muscle. And that makes sense mechanistically too. I mean, it, it would make it sense does. that the system Correct. would be set up that way because with the amino acid right. trigger, you're going to right. get anabolic activity. Right. That makes sense. Right. So if people are still confused about that, then I... I think that that is really a travesty because there's, I mean, it makes no sense. So if we were to take a step back, mTOR is in all tissues. mTOR 
is much more sensitive to excess carbohydrates and excess calories in every other tissue, kidney, liver, pancreas. If you're really concerned about cancer, then you shouldn't be obese. And I appreciate that. And I appreciate the explanation too. It's right. the first time I think we've, we've talked about it on this show. So I appreciate that. Um, also I wanted to spend a little bit of time so you can tell us about your amazing work with our military and task force dagger.org. Yeah. Um, so for those people that don't know, my husband is a Navy SEAL. He's wow. a SEAL for wow. 10 years, recently retired, <laughs> wow. actually awesome. in medical school. Wow. <laughs> now, oh my God. Uh-huh. He's like, you know, I thought I'd do something else with my life. Um, <laughs> and uh, part of my practice, sir, you know, they're real underachievers. Yeah. Um, part of my practice serves elite military operators, and that includes um, active duty Navy SEALs, retired Navy SEALs, Green Berets, Rangers, any, you know, some of the Canadian assaulters. So anyone who is an elite special operations um, individual, I have seen pre post deployment. And also, I work with a foundation called Task Force Dagger, and they are absolutely incredible and have a healthcare initiative that really is collecting data and bringing functional medicine to our most elite. Awesome. That's, that's um, great. quite a privilege and quite an incredible group. Wow. Excellent work. That's yeah. fascinating. Uh, just, we've talked about how functional medicine is kind of getting into some of the professional athletes and athletic teams, mm-hmm. but to know it's in yep. special ops, I mean, this is amazing. And we're going to link to taskforcedagger.org in the show notes so people can check that out themselves. But in addition yep. to Task Force Dagger, you have a website, drgabriellion.com. Can you talk about what yep. patients and clinicians expect when they visit the website? Yeah. So it's really just to give you some basic framework. Um, It's very simple. It's basic framework for um, uh, meet my mentor, Sue, meet Dr. Donald Lehman. Mm -hmm. You'll be able to sign up for my newsletter, um, which I pick highly curated information. I have a YouTube channel. um, And that's really if you're really into science or finding out more, we talk a lot about the data and the science. And those are a lot of conversations with myself. And Dr. Lehman. Um, And then if people are interested in becoming a patient, there is a screening process that that goes into that. Great. Do you do telemedicine, Dr. Lyon? I do. I do do telemedicine. Great, 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 great. Awesome. Um, well, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing some of this amazing wisdom. We've we've talked a lot about these concepts and we, you know, being the functional medicine podcast, we talk uh, about, you know, what's the optimal diet, what's the optimal approach, what's, what's the optimal macros, all those things. So I think this has been really helpful and shed a lot of light. And um, before I let you go, we do have one last question that uh, is a little bit of a curveball that we don't warn anyone about, but um, <laughs> it's called the fireball question. And what we were going to ask you since we were, we were talking beforehand <laughs> about just muscles and overall muscle centric Mike and approach. I debating muscles. And then we had this thought of, uh, you know, what, Patty, what's your favorite muscle? So I thought, oh, what a great question. Maybe Dr. Gabrielle Lyon has actually a favorite muscle or muscle group. Oh, so I guess if we're going to talk about muscle, we have to define it as skeletal muscle as a Yes, you're right. Muscle. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so that's kind of a, a trick question there. But, you know, it definitely has to be skeletal muscle and do I have my a favorite skeletal <laughs> muscle man um that's a really good question 
<laughs> no, initially I would say glutes, right? Because I look at baby tushies oh. all day long and it's just the cutest. You guys have two, you know, there's, <laughs> you know, you guys have kids, you know, yeah. I'd have to say that it's a really superficial answer, but <laughs> that's true. a good answer. It is true. Baby tushies are the best. <laughs> that's true. It's so true. <laughs> well, Dr. Lyon, this has been a ridiculous amount of great information, very educational and fun. And we're so grateful that you came, but we want to encourage the audience to check out your website, drgabriellion.com. But where else can they see you on social media? Yeah, I'm very active, you know, on the typical social media channels. I'm very active on Instagram. Um, And again, YouTube, Instagram, not so much on Facebook, but I am on there. So, you know, the usual. Great. Well, we can't thank you enough, Dr. Lyon, for coming on the show with us today and spending some time with us. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm going to get me some of those muscles. <laughs> I think you should. And I, it's just interesting that paradigm shift you talked about, like moving away from the focus on obesity to the lack of muscle. Yeah. Yeah. It's really profound. I mean, we yeah. spend so much time talking about weight gain, weight loss and fat mass and adiposity, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And, and certainly it has its role, right? It produces this mm-hmm. inflammation and things like that. But it's uh, to think of it as like a point counterpoint. Right. With between the muscle and the density of the adiposity. I mean, that's just yeah. really interesting. Focus on building muscle. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I will. Well, I will too. Oh. I think we all should. Okay. That's good advice, I guess. Yeah. Next time on The Lab Report, we're going to talk to Tom Maltair. Yeah, we're going to talk elimination diet, toxins, detoxification. And of course, nutrition. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. You know, with all of this talk about muscles, yeah. it really does lend itself to your Arnold Schwarzenegger impression. No, I'm, I'm oh, not, come on. Not it's gonna really do good. It. No. Just do it once. No way. Please. No, never. Come on. Get to the chopper. <laughs> <laughs>